Welcome to the TDC Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Rick Barnett. He's a practicing psychologist in Vermont with a doctorate in psychology, as well as a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. He owns a private mental health practice called BPS Health and is president-elect of the American Psychological Association's Division 55, which is focused on psychopharmacology. Dr. Barnett has been advocating for doctorate-level psychologists to be able to prescribe medications relevant to psychiatric conditions. So in this episode, we talk about that proposal, as well as prescribing in general and as it relates to addiction. As always, thank you to everyone who's been supporting TDC. Because this is not a monetized or sponsored resource, donations through Patreon, PayPal, and Bitcoin make this project possible. So I really appreciate all of the ongoing support that exists for TDC. If you want to contribute, you can find details on how to donate in the description of this podcast and at thedrugclassroom.com support. I'm here with Rick Barnett. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. Can you talk about your background a little bit and how you got into psychology and what your focus is in your practice? Sure. Yep. My background is in psychology. I have a doctoral degree and a master's degree in clinical psychology. I also went on after I got my doctorate to get a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology because the need that I saw in the population that I was working with at the time, geriatrics, geropsychology, nursing homes, really the um, amount of medications that are being prescribed and wanting to learn a little bit more about uh, pharmacology, clinical psychopharmacology, and how that relates to traditional talk therapy, working with people non-pharmacologically. Uh, I got into the field because I've always been interested in mental health and addiction, and I'm myself in, a, I'm in long-term recovery from addiction. It probably could be said that that's some of what made me pursue uh, this field and my profession, but not entirely because uh, even predating my own personal addiction, I was always, always interested in people and being very social with family and friends. And so I think it's just a natural fit over time. But that's my background in brief. So I, you kind of referenced this with your, how you got into psychopharmacology, but I imagine it's, there's a big impact on psychology, even though psychologists classically don't prescribe drugs of there being all of these psychoactive medications that basically any condition that you would be trying to address ranging from anxiety to addiction, there is something that could be given for that. And it's very common for people to be on those drugs. So what is modern psychology practice like in the age of all these drugs being around? It's a great question. I don't really know if there's something that could be connected to a shift in traditional talk therapy psychological practice as a result of the advent of sort of the psychopharmacological revolution. Uh, you know, if anything, my hope would be, and that's certainly my path, is that people like me who are trained traditionally non-pharmacologically in all types of psychological theories, treatment approaches, uh, the academic background, that, that we would at least want to inform ourselves at a moderate level uh, in terms of the influence of psychopharmacology or even just societally how culture thinks about a pill for every ill, so to speak, or the fact that, as you said, 
you know, if somebody has some condition, anxiety, depression, sleep difficulty, mood instability, by now it's in everybody's collective consciousness that, hey, there might be a pill for that. And so, you know, knowing that as part of our culture and as a non-prescribing mental health provider, we should at least be informed about, you know, asking people what medications they may have been on in the past, what their feeling is about medication in general, uh, and, you know, ideally even knowing more than that about medications, especially because I don't know if you know what the numbers are, I bet you do. Uh, I think one in 10 Americans right now are on uh, an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. I think if you look over the course of a lifetime, uh, I would say one in four adults, maybe even more than that, has tried a psychoactive medication for some sort of mental health condition. So, um, and that doesn't even include just recreational drugs. You talk about alcohol or cannabis, you know, what percentage of adults have tried that and knowing even more about that as a mental health provider, I think it's important to to know some of the pharmacology. Do you get the sense that you're an outlier in the field for having gone through psychology training, but then really have an interest in what patients are, what your your patients might be on or, or what drugs might be out there? I would, you know, in my first instinct is to say yes, that I would I would consider myself somewhat of an outlier. But I, it's interesting, my mind flipped to the other side. And if you think about traditional prescribers, you know, what percentage of those folks, whether they're primary care docs or nurse practitioners, physician assistants, or even psychiatrists, those folks who are classically trained in in biomedical uh, approaches to health conditions, a lot of them are, w- would they be considered outliers if they happen to take a particular interest in non-pharmacological, non-biomedical interventions for the conditions that they treat? And it's just an interesting flip on the question in that I think there's quite a few of those folks who are really interested in things like cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic theory or other types of non-pharmacological approaches. I think that bleeds into how the society at large views these different professions. I mean, people think of, or at least I, I hear a lot of people think about psychiatrists as sort of doctors that you get these medications from. But if you want classic therapy in a non-drug approach, then you kind of go to this entirely different profession. Whereas it'd be nice if a psychiatrist or a psychologist really had the full set of tools available to them, because there's a lot of patients where just talk therapy works, but then there's surely a lot of people where some combination of the two is good. Um, but I think people just, given that these fields are siloed, probably in part by the, the difference in prescribing privileges, that people just, you know, you go to a psychiatrist if you want like medication management, and then uh, some people just end up having their entire condition being treated simply by doses of drugs. And it's kind of a, an odd situation because mental health is surely more complicated than just that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that, uh, you know, as professionals, we may even tend to perpetuate that, you know, there are some primary care physicians, for example, who see that uh, the person that they're working with for whatever condition they're working with may have a very complex psychiatric picture and they will, instead of uh, tackling it themselves, which may be appropriate that they they shouldn't t- tackle it themselves, they'll say, well, you need to go see a psychiatrist for better medication management for your mental health stuff, but I'll handle either the basic mental health stuff like um, quote unquote easier medications to manage like the classic SSRIs. But if you have uh, some sort of thought disorder or really 
poorly managed bipolar disorder or multiple medications that the primary care physician may not feel confident handling, they'll refer to a, a psychiatrist or a mental health provider who may feel really uncomfortable about psychiatric medications will refer somebody to either a primary care provider for basic medication, psychiatric medications or a psychiatrist. So it's interesting because I think as professionals, we may tend to perpetuate that. On top of what you're saying is that some patients or people in society, all of us may be also under the um, spell, so to speak, of the idea that there is a pill for every ill. And it's just so much easier to take a medication if I'm having difficulty sleeping. Screw this cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia stuff. That's too much work. I just need something to help me sleep. Or I'm just feeling a little down or a little anxious. I'm sure my primary care doc can give me something for that. I really don't necessarily want to do the work of sitting down with some stranger I don't know for 45 minutes and, and talking about stuff. That's just uncomfortable. So patients may perpetuate the siloing in their own way. And I think, you know, people will, and you can think about this for yourself, if you have a primary care physician or provider who actually spends more than their 10 or 15 minutes a lot of time with you and really wants to know about your story and you feel like there's a more of a connection, there's more time, you're going to feel more comfortable with that person prescribing psychiatric medications and uh, so I think the same would go for a prescribing psychologist, that if the prescribing psychologist shows that they have knowledge and skill in the area of psychopharmacology, then the patient's going to want to receive and have the experience of being on medications in that in that context. So it, it is definitely the basis for one of the arguments for prescriptive authority for psychologists is that why do we silo? Why are we sort of sending people to this appointment over here and that appointment over here when they can have it all under one roof. In some cases, that's what has happened. It's all being done under the roof of primary care to the extent that um, it's not always optimal in that setting. It can be really good and it's helpful, but I don't know if that's the best setting for the de facto mental health system in America. I believe it really is the majority, like 50 or 60% of at least the common things like SSRIs are, are given out by primary care, not by specialists. 70 to 80%. Yeah. You can see, I mean, obviously some primary care physicians will actually handle that quite well. And then there's also the argument that making it easier to access those medications is good for patients. But then on the flip side, and this is perhaps a more common argument, it contributes to overprescribing because it would be nice if your primary care could be your go-to for most of your health concerns. But when it comes to mental health, they don't really have the training or perhaps the interest or just the time constraints of, of 10 or 15 minute appointments. They can't do something other than a drug, so the drug is the solution, but it, it just it's very easy to imagine how that contributes to either over-prescribing or mis-prescribing, where these drugs are just not targeted to the right people, because how could you really know if somebody should be on an SSRI from 10 or 20 minutes of talking to them? There's a lot of people that describe, you know, as patients, that they went to their primary care, and in a single appointment, they walked away with a, a substance. How do you 
How do you view that? I mean, it's possible to imagine primary care working well, but that particular situation of a single appointment, a single short appointment, and then walking away with the drug, do you think that would be at all wise? Well, it does happen quite frequently. I can tell you a, a sort of a, a, a to just to reinforce the sort of negative side of that. I can tell you a story about a patient that I had a couple of years ago who was a known patient to a primary care physician who was a healthy male in his late 30s and only goes in for primary care appointments when he's got the flu or some medical thing. And so he hadn't really been seen by his primary care physician all that often in the previous 10 years, maybe three or four times for various conditions. But one day comes in because he's under a tremendous amount of stress and pressure from work and he's having difficulty in his marriage and he's going in a state into his primary care physician's office with what seems like racing thoughts, possible severe agitation, looking like he could be really having, for lack of a better word, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, seeming to the primary care physician like he's got a bipolar condition or in a manic phase of agitation and racing thoughts. And the first line medication given to this person was lithium. And it was really in the context of a 20-minute appointment for this type of patient, again, who's known to the primary care physician. And they certainly were acting in the patient's best interest. And it was definitely within their scope of practice to make that decision to be able to handle a medication like that. That's The training does allow for that. But was that the best choice for that particular patient? He came to see me. After a couple of sessions, we realized that lithium really, it did take the edge off a little bit, but that just wasn't really an appropriate medication for the person. It was just some time through the stress that he was going through, and he eventually came off the medications. He's not on any medication now. He's stable, doing well. I see him about once a month or so. And that's an example of, I think, where the over-prescribing can happen. But I think the other point that it raises, Seth, is going back to your show uh, that you did recently on SSRI withdrawal. And really, you know, when you're, when you're getting medication in that setting, whether it's, you know, one-time visit, 15 minutes, walk out with a script, only to see the person three months later, six months later, get a refill. And the next thing you know, they're on this medication for the next five years. A lot of times in primary care, they're, they're reluctant to do much in terms of tight tapering people off of these medications if and when it's time. They just don't have the time to sit down and actually, quote unquote, hold the person's hand through the process of coming off an SSRI, especially if they've been on it for a while. And only, again, I'm saying this only in the context of a patient comes to a prescriber and says, hey, I think I'm feeling better. I think I want to try to start to come off this stuff. It's unlikely that a primary care physician is going to be able to have the time um, and the uh, skill set to work through that process with a person to help unprescribe the medication. And, and that's part of what this, this workforce, this movement is about, prescribing psychologists to be able to prescribe selectively at those right times to work with people in a more talk therapy, a longer, a longer kind of way, but also to help people when they're ready to start to come off these medications if that's appropriate. So where, if any place, have psychologists been able to start prescribing? And do we know what the impact is? I'm not, I don't think I've seen any research on it. Yeah. So in the U.S. military, it's where the movement started. The Department of Defense had a pilot project in the 1990s. So Psychologists have been trained and have been prescribing in the U.S. military, Department of Defense, for 
for the last 25 years or so, since the mid to late 1990s. Do you know where that push came from? What the reasoning was? The reasoning is the same reasoning as now. There were just weren't enough psychiatrists and they were looking for to see if it was possible to train psychologists to be able to prescribe competently and effectively and help to reduce the burden uh, in the military. So they did that. It was successful. I think uh, there were there were 10 military psychologists that were trained and at that time and I think it was due to funding and eventually really strong pushback from psychiatrists uh, feeling like they didn't want this to be happening, that they terminated that, that process. But if you, they, it resulted in the next two states, which is Louisiana and New Mexico, both, both passing legislation in the early 2000s for prescribing psychologists. And since that time, there have been psychologists prescribing in Louisiana and New Mexico I guess, uh, yeah, for the last uh, 15 years or so. And, you know, in terms of its net impact on access in those two states, it's there hasn't been a lot of research showing, you know, has it improved access to mental health uh, services in those states? You know, it's relatively new workforce, you know, having gone into effect in 2005, really just getting the numbers of psychologists prescribing only really in the last you know, nine or 10 years. To, so to have good data on the, uh, whether it's reduced problems associated with access to care, there's not a whole lot out there. But also since that time, Seth, Idaho, Illinois, and Iowa have passed laws. And just a few months ago, the first prescribing psychologist was licensed in the state of Illinois. Uh, Iowa and Idaho are still uh, they don't have a workforce yet. They're just putting their rules into place. So it is a growing movement. It's slow. It's very much like the nurse practitioner movement over many decades, pushing for improved scope of practice and, and independence. And uh, it's just going to be an ongoing process. So I'm really at the forefront of that. Do these changes come with any restrictions on the prescribing? Or is it truly the same as a physician where just anything that's approved can be given for that use or given off-label? It's most states, I believe, they're restricted and for obvious reasons to prescribing only those medications that are typically prescribed for mental health issues. And that may include some off-label. I'm not sure. So for example, sometimes, as you know, beta blockers, clonidine or propranolol, they may be used for anxiety. And uh, I'm not sure. I can't tell you specifically. It's a good question. Uh, I believe prescribing psychologists may be able to use those medications for anxiety. They're off-label for for anxiety. Again, they're, they're heart medications for beta blockers. But for the most part, the formulary in all those states will only include those approved for psychiatric conditions. So it goes more on the limiting by the condition that they're used for, not whether they're controlled, for example. So they would be able to prescribe things like benzodiazepines or amphetamine or methylphenidate, that kind of stuff? Yep. Schedule two, schedules two and above, as long as they're indicated for for mental health conditions. Yep. So you're based in Vermont. What is the state of the proposed legislation in Vermont? And what are the specifics as it pertains to things like restrictions for that that legislation? Well, uh, we are in our fourth year, the end of our second biennium in 2020 that will start in January. There are two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate. There's 10 sponsors on the House bill and there's seven sponsors on the Senate bill. Again, this is the fourth year the first year was really just barely starting to get the word out. Second year, we were able to get 
a Senate bill. The third year we had a House and Senate bill and really started to get some momentum. And hopefully this year we will see the light of day. And what I mean by that is that hopefully the uh, political powers that be will see the merits of this bill as the sponsors have, and they'll encourage the chairs of the committees that they're in to take the bills off the wall, so to speak, for discussion, for debate, and for a vote. I'm, I'm confident that will happen. I just had a meeting with the Office of Professional Regulation. Most states have a regulatory board or regulatory agency set up by the government and the Office of Professional Regulation in Vermont handles most of the healthcare professions except for the medical board. So nursing, osteopaths, and doesn't include physician assistants either, but psychologists and numerous other healthcare professional boards, regulatory boards. And the council, the legal council for them is steeped in prescribing psychologists, has thoroughly vetted the training and the education and the regulatory aspects of having this workforce in Vermont, and they are in full support of this bill. And my hope is that uh, with their encouragement and their influence, that they communicate to legislators and the public that this is safe, effective, it's a good strategy to try to improve access to mental health care and improve prescribing practices, frankly. So I had a meeting with them recently. Unfortunately, my understanding is the Board of Psychological Examiners, while once, I think, neutral on the subject, I, I don't think they're in favor of this right now. But I was assured that that is not going to limit our possibility of getting this taken up for discussion. So we have broad support from other mental health providers and from other healthcare practitioners. There's pushback from the medical society and from the psychiatric association. But other than that, we enjoy broad support and I'm confident it'll move forward. I think the formulary will be the same as in other states. It will be restricted to um, psychiatric medications for approved psychiatric conditions. So you mentioned training. How? What are the training requirements and how is that education different from, say, medical school or pharmacy school, things like that? It's pretty difficult to summarize, but I can try to do that. In, in, in summary, it's basically a reverse kind of model. And, and what I mean by that is that in medical practice and in, in medical training, you go to school, you get the biomedical experience, uh, the biomedical education, and then you go on to have uh, rotations and you do your residency. And if you want to specialize in a certain area, you you choose that residency according to your specialty. And in psychology training, in order to become a prescribing psychologist, you must complete a doctoral degree in psychology And that is, uh, right now as it stands, it's an entrance requirement in order to apply for a two-year master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology where you get all the didactic coursework in clinical medicine, pathophysiology, neuroanatomy, pharmacology, psychopharmacology, some of the basic classic medical knowledge. And then you go out and do rotations in or you get supervised experience for a year with a prescribing provider before you're authorized to prescribe medications yourself. So it's, it's, it's a different model in that you, you start with traditional psychology and then you go on to learn the more classic medical stuff and then do a rotation. Whereas 
with physicians, you start with a medical background. And then if you want to specialize in psychiatry or some other specialty, then you do the rotations in that. So there's some similarities. The argument against it is that because psychologists don't go to medical school and don't get the classic biomedical training as the model has existed for many, many, many decades, that somehow it makes their training model inferior or even some say dangerous or unsafe for the public. And, uh, and it's just not true. I mean, the evolution of education and training in the United States is continues to uh, unfold. And we've got physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And if you compare our training, uh, psychologist training, prescribing psychologist training to nurse practitioners and physician assistants, you could, could make a pretty strong argument for why prescribing psychologist is pretty ideal candidate to be able to handle uh, medications at least as well as nurse practitioners who have independent scope of practice in, in multiple states and, and physician assistants who work under the license of a physician. To focus on those concerns a little, the training and then the eventual prescribing is really centered around psychopharmacology and that does come with some general pharmacology and physiology knowledge, I, I'm sure. But since the focus is on psychopharmacology, but you're treating people with medical conditions that are more complex than just limited to the brain, or there's other drugs involved that have a variety of effects on the body, given the focus is so much on psychopharmacology, do you think there is sort of a legitimate concern that when it comes to how those drugs and the prescribing will interact with these bodily conditions that probably were not focused on as much in that training as it would be in the more general med school setting. Do you think that is a concern? Because obviously these drugs, they don't just affect the brain, they affect every organ system in the body. Right. Well, I mean, I understand the idea of that concern. I, I think there's three things that come to mind right away that challenge those concerns. One is that the training isn't specifically around psychopharmacology. The training that I received anyway in my master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology really does a very thorough job in review of systems. So you go through all the systems of the body, you're, you're training in terms of doing a physical exam, doing a review of systems, so you're going through the endocrinological, the endocrinology, you're going through cardiovascular system, the reproductive system, you're going through all the systems of the body, you're learning the basics of those things, you're learning the basics of pharmacology, not just psychopharmacology, and any training program that is geared towards training a prescribing provider better have the you know core ingredients of being able to do that safely and effectively, it better provide the knowledge and the education, the didactic material necessary to be able to safely prescribe these medications. So it's built into the structure of the, the clinical pharmacology master's degree to make sure that people who get this training, that get this education, understand bodily systems, understand medications and how they operate on the body and how they function metabolically going through the absorption and uh, metabolic process, the excretion process, the distribution throughout the body, in what areas, the liver, the kidneys, how it affects the heart. You, we need to know these things. The, the other thing is that if you think about that argument, you know, the example that I gave you earlier about the patient getting lithium, you know, we do have a fair amount of background in clinical 
assessment and diagnosis of mental health conditions. And you could have a prescriber, a, med- a traditionally trained medical prescriber, understand bodily systems, but they if they don't understand mental health and they're just saying, oh, well, there's this lithium medication and, you know, as long as this person's kidneys are functioning appropriately and there's no other obvious medical signs of why I shouldn't prescribe this and I'm just going to prescribe this, well, there's obvious mental health reasons why you may not want to prescribe that. And there, there are safety concerns around that as well. And the, and the third thing, I, I forgot what the third thing was, Seth, but there was something else that came to mind um, about that question. And it is one that comes up. So it is a legitimate argument, but my sense is that um, there's no way in hell anyone would go through the training or any of these laws would be passed if for some reason there was some serious weaknesses in the education and training that a prescribing psychologist gets when it comes to prescribing psychiatric medications. They sure as hell better know what medications do to a person's body. And if they have a kidney condition, if they have a heart condition, if they have hypothyroidism, if they have other medical problems, a prescribing psychologist better know what those medical problems are, how they are affecting the person's body, how the other medications that the person takes are affecting their system. And if that psychologist wants to add or subtract a medication, they better have a solid understanding of how that's going to affect the whole system. So I believe the training is is very solid in that regard. It's purely hypothetical, but I can imagine that when you're taking somebody like a psychologist who is, after they've gone through all their normal education, expanding their practice and going into this different field and are finally getting into the more biomedical and biology, physiology side of things, that they might actually be more cautious than somebody who went through the medical uh, medical training programs and are now a doctor and have a tendency, though I don't know that this is always true, but perhaps there's a tendency to feel like you can treat everything and you kind of adequately know about everything. But we see in the severe lack of patient education regarding things like antidepressant withdrawal and side effects and coming off these medications and just it's so clear that physicians are, even psychiatrists, are probably prescribing much of the time also not really understanding and not conveying to the patients uh, a complete understanding of these medications. So if you take somebody who is actually going through this alternative route, they might be in some ways more cautious and more careful with the choices that they make. They just don't have that same sense of they're able to address any medical condition. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. I think that had to do with my my third point is that, you know, we're going into this field. We know it's really um, historically the jurisdiction of traditional medical providers. And we go into it really, really wanting to be cautious, really wanting to learn and soak up as much as we can learn. And if you think just about the time that it takes to be able to prescribe as a psychologist independently, this is already after you've had some clinical experience with people. You've probably done an internship. You've done multiple externships. They're probably in healthcare settings. You've probably reviewed medical uh, records several times. Then you have three years of this didactic and then experiential training in uh, a more traditional medical kind of way. And so you're just soaking up all this information. And you know it reminds me of when I got into this, I said at the beginning of the program, at the beginning of the podcast was was in nursing homes and pouring through these medical charts and really understanding 
what are the medications this person is taking for what conditions and how do these conditions affect their body? How are they affecting their mind? How are they affecting these conditions affecting the process by which medications pass through their body? And really, you know, getting a clear sense of that. And, and I can give you an example just to highlight your point a little bit more, Seth, and that is that there's well known in the literature anyway that uh, there is an interaction for some people between a uh, sort of a semi, semi-synthetic uh, painkiller, not quite an opioid, but sort of an opioid, tramadol, uh, comes in, uh, Ultram is another name for that. But tramadol is often used as a pain reliever for people. And there's an interaction between tramadol and SSRIs where it can cause uh, serotonergic syndrome. So someone can have an overabundance of serotonin that can cause... Yeah, fundamentally, tramadol is actually more of a SNRI than even an opioid. Right, right, exactly. And so I was noticing this in some of the patient charts that I was reviewing. I'm working with these patients. I'm talking with them. I'm understanding their condition. I go through their medical charts. I see that this person's being prescribed a fairly high dose of tramadol, they're taking Cymbalta, duloxetine, which is also an SS- SNRI, and they're taking another classical SSRI like Zoloft or something. And I'm saying to myself, Jesus, the serotonergic load on this person is not good. And I'd say to the primary care physician, like, I think we might be loading them up here. This is probably something we want to take a look at. And I've had primary care docs be like, oh, that's fine. We do it all the time. No big deal. And then the neurologist comes in and I pointed out to the neurologist and the neurologist is like, Oh my gosh, that is not good. We need to change that up. You know, so even among, uh, you know, people who are well-trained in biomedical uh, material and, and pharmacology, there's disagreement among among them. So it's just kind of an interesting phenomenon. I would say that, you know, we as prescribing psychologists are much more conservative. There is some data out of New Mexico showing that we're more conservative in our, private, in our prescribing practices. Uh, so yeah, that is true. This is a very wide-ranging question, but what is your take overall on SSRIs, other antidepressants, anxiolytics, etc.? Do you think that a good therapist is typically able to avoid the need for these medications? Do you think there are people for whom these medications are actually the most suitable thing, even better than therapy? I mean, they overall have kind of they they have notable efficacy, but it's pretty mediocre, and they obviously have a number of side effects. You know, I'm curious what your take on when prescribing of these things actually makes sense. And, and this, this gets to the overprescribing issue as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a hard, that is a broad question. It's, it's sort of a case-by-case basis. The, the person's name that comes to mind is Alan Francis. I don't know if you know Dr. Alan Francis, but he was uh, involved. He worked on the DSM, right? DSM, the DSM-4, yeah. And he's been an outspoken critic of the DSM-5 and the pharmaceutical industry and uh, he's definitely not opposed to medication. He's very clear in his position that, you know, for certain conditions and certain levels of severity for various conditions that psychiatric medications can, in fact, be a godsend, a lifesaver, and be really helpful for people. And there are many cases where people with mild to moderate anxiety, depression, or even some sort of milder version of a, of a bipolar 2 condition or something like that, they just may not there may be some people who could benefit from a medication in that case, but many, many do not. And, you know, I, I think that prescribing psychologists do have the advantage typically of the setting in which they work or the training from which they've had working with people in, in a 
a longer session format and a different kind of way, asking different questions and looking for different things that could actually help people either steer away from medications when they're not necessary or help them get on a medication based on the level of severity when it's appropriate. And and it's part of the training as a psychologist that I think lends itself to more selective prescribing that way. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I, I don't think that... I think it's an impossible question to answer, to be fair. Yeah, I just I just don't think it's... They're not supposed to be mutually exclusive. It's not like the goal of prescribing psychologists is to, you know get everybody off of these medications because it's just we're, we're in the middle of an overprescribing epidemic and we're just going to come in and take people off all their medications. And and nor is it um, what some uh, opponents say is like, you know, I had an email exchange with the head of a local medical school recently, not recently, a few years ago, where I was looking for his support. And he's like, yeah, Rick, that's just what we need. Just another prescriber, uh, you know, like very sarcastic saying, we don't need more prescribers. That's not what we need. And, you know, I could agree with him in some ways. We don't need more prescribers, but I think we need to really refine our understanding of the the value of psychiatric medications and really, I think, scale back our understanding or, or exuberance or our thinking around the, the real efficacy of them. Like you were saying, the, the data that we have is mediocre at best in favor of, uh, let's say, the traditional like SSRIs or, or psychiatric medications that it may have a modest effect in the majority of cases. In some, it's very destructive, and in some, and in some people, it's, it's a lifesaver. But in terms of being like the go-to approach to treating mental health conditions, I think we've oversold it. And I think the pendulum does need to swing a little bit more the other way. And a part of the opioid epidemic is, so I think, spilling out over into the psychiatric world saying, yeah, well, I think we need to take a look at this because there is no chemical imbalance theory. We're not sort of correcting serotonin levels like we're treating some sort of fever or uh, some other kind of condition. So I think we're, we're getting wise to that now. But having the right workforce and having the right education and and knowledge put out there so that we're doing a better job of prescribing is really what I think the prescribing psychologist movement is all about. For anxiolytics in particular, the old school option was sedatives and that continued until say a couple decades ago with SSRIs becoming a common way to avoid things like benzodiazepines. Do you think that the non-sedative options are oversold? And then the flip side of that being, or the other side of that being, do you think the harms of things like benzodiazepines are overstated because there seems to be a lot of debate, especially among patients. There's people who feel like they were doing fine with a benzodiazepine prescription for years, and then they're suddenly being encouraged because there's so much concern about benzodiazepines to move to something like an SSRI. But do you think that that generally makes sense? Do you think SSRIs really should be the the first line treatment or something other than a benzodiazepine at least should be the first line treatment? Or do you think benzodiazepines can be a fine way to deal with anxiety. Well, again, I think this is another example of where nuance is key and having the right provider with the right in the right setting help patients make the right decision around that. And uh, and I am somebody who is an addiction specialist and I am somebody who one would traditionally think that, you know, benzos are bad, they just cause addiction and people need to steer away from them, really prescribe them you know, rarely, if at all, because they're 
so dangerous in terms of their addiction potential. And while they are addictive, and I've worked with plenty of people that have become addicted to to benzos, there are those people just like with opioids who can be maintained on relatively high levels of benzos for long periods of time. The same thing with like relatively high levels of opioids for their chronic pain and really live fairly productive lives over a long period of time. And, And those people should not be force tapered off their medications simply because there's this increased fear around overprescribing or addiction or whatever. But I, I do think that, um, I do not think that SSRIs should be the first line or substitute altogether for, for benzos. A lot of times what prescribers are doing is that they'll start somebody on, let's say, sertraline or Zoloft for anxiety, but the person is struggling now. And so they will co-prescribe clonopin or Ativan or something, you know, meant for the first couple of weeks so that the SSRI, the Zoloft can kick in. And then they're supposed to taper off their their benzo at that point. And um, I'm not so sure about that. I, I just, I really don't think that benzos should be prescribed as a long-term solution for anybody with moderate to mild anxiety, but could be helpful for people who have mild to moderate anxiety that might spike once in a while as a PRN kind of medication. But, you know, from what I what I know from working with people, if you've been taking clonopin for five years, 10 years, to come off of clonopin is very difficult. To come off of some of these medications are very difficult, much more difficult than the SSRI withdrawal process. And we really want to be mindful of that. And I, I, I frankly don't think that, again, the, the typical psychiatric setting or primary care setting to help people know when to be on these medications and how to come off of them. They're just not well designed to help people with that. And uh, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's fairly nuanced. I really think that benzos have a place for certain people, either acutely or possibly chronically. People should not be forced tapered off them. They should not be uh, sort of uh, steered clear of in favor at all times in favor of SSRIs to treat anxiety. Absolutely not. There's so many there's so many options. We talked about beta blockers before for anxiety, for example. You know, that that's a viable option. It actually works for pretty well for some people. So there's there's a lot of options out there. I don't think any one medication or class of medication should be the go-to over other ones because of fears around addiction or overprescribing. How do you approach trying to be informed about all of these medications when being informed usually means relying on the scientific literature and there's so much evidence of publication bias and misleading studies and a lack of research into long-term versus short-term prescribing. So the best place you can go to learn about these drugs is also this highly suboptimal place. How do you how do you approach that literature and try to understand what these substances do, especially if they're new and you don't have, um, you haven't seen many people on a medication and have an idea just from clinical experience. One of the things that's really important and embedded in the pharmacological training that, that I received is being extremely critical of the pharmaceutical industry, the research, how the research is published, uh, the mechanics behind the whole process as well as the research itself, looking very thoroughly, not just at the abstract or the summary or basic methodology, but really scrutinizing uh, 
all aspects of how studies are done and how some most studies don't see the light of day anyway because of negative results. And, you know, we're ex exquisite consumers of the, the research that comes out. So, you know, things like David Healy's work on Let Them Eat Prozac is, for, exa for example, is, is a book. And more recently, a few years ago, a book came out called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Bob Whitaker, which is an excellent, excellent book. Other folks like Sally Sattel and some others who, you know, people who are outspoken in terms of their criticisms of the research understanding conflict of interest, understanding how the influences behind the scenes of these publications, you know, how they cause bias in, in the results and, and how it's sold. I mean, that's something that we are made very aware of in our, in our training, I would say more so than any other profession, uh, prescribing profession. And that's a bold claim, I understand, because I think every prescribing profession would say that they are you know, exquisite consumers of, of the research. But I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the limitations section of, of research articles and been like, what? Like, how can this even be published if there's these sort of glaring limitations in methodology and subject selection and statistical biases, you know, and not to mention the, the data or the research that was done that didn't even get, get published that, you know, they had to come up with like, 12 different trials before they could find two positive ones in order to get this medication to the next phase of approval. I tend to really scrutinize these things. I've, I've been very critical of the literature on buprenorphine, naltrexone, methadone during this sort of opioid epidemic. And if you look at the even the, the biases there and, and, the, and the nuance behind some of the studies there, you, you really begin to question, um, you know, how can we trust this this literature, I think it still does give us a broad brushstroke understanding of, of medications and how they can be applied, especially because you can see the limitations and then you can sort of learn from that process. But um, I don't know if enough of us really do take the time to, to scrutinize it, especially when new medications come to market, Latuda or Vralar or Rexulti or Brexulti or, you know, all these things that come out, they're just reiterations of the same chemical structure. They just tweak one little thing and it comes to market by basically the same company who produced the previous version because that's going off patent. And people don't really realize these things. And it's, it's I think it's really important. And I think that is something that prescribing psychologists bring to the table to help the uh, patients and other healthcare providers understand how this stuff works. I do want to discuss addiction a little before before I let you go. I tend to view addiction, and this could be incorrect, and feel free to comment on that, as a, a symptom of other mental health issues and of other lifestyle issues, be it depression or anxiety or just things in someone's life. So it's more a symptom and not really the core condition that's likely in need of treatment. There's a lot, there's an entire field of addiction treatment and it tends to silo in on the drug use is the problem and therefore abstinence is the answer or medication assisted treatment is the answer. But it's kind of ignoring what is the reason for somebody pursuing this addictive pattern of drug use. I mean, there's usually a reason for doing so. And that reason could be addressed and perhaps be a better way of treating addiction. Do you think that that's an accurate way to view the condition? Well, I I don't. I mean, I actually see it. I, what, what that that suggests is, is sort of like half accurate. And the problem with that is that if you, it's almost like a, it's a, like a polarizing framework. So that if you say, for example, it's really just a symptom and therefore we need to look at the 
uh, traumatogenic, you know, this comes from trauma. This is from a learning dis- dis- disability. This is self-medicating anxiety and depression. And you could spend years uh, with somebody uh, either medically or, or non-pharmacologically trying to address underlying trauma, anxiety, depression, a learning disorder. In the meantime, the person's going home every night and they're smoking crack or they're getting drunk or they're smoking weed. And if you're not simultaneously, at least at least 50% of the the effort should be focused on not necessarily going for abstinence at all, but really, you know, at least talking about the drug use itself and what it means to people and how it helps them and what they like about it, what they don't like about it and strategies around, you know, reducing their use or are they interested in abstinence and what are the, what are strategies to achieve abstinence if that's, if that's what they want. Um, if they want medication assisted treatment, is that helpful for them? Is that really what they're looking for? Or they just, you know, there's, there's my point being that I think it, again, it's much more nuanced than that. I, I don't think it's only about a self-medication situation, an underlying trauma or learning disability or depression, anxiety thing. And it's not just about, like you said, like it's not just about the drug itself or the drug use itself. And I think uh, licensed alcohol and drug counselors, of which I am one, often tend to focus only on the drug use or the alcohol use, same with treatment centers, as you were saying, and to the neglect of the underlying factors. And then you have psychologists or mental health experts in areas of trauma or depression or anxiety or learning disabilities, and they focus exclusively on that. In the meantime, they're really not addressing the substance use or the alcohol use at all, and and that's their um, condition isn't remitting. So I think it really does require a sort of two-prong approach, addressing both of those situations equally or sort of titrating each one depending on the situation. Given you view treating addiction itself as important, but you also noted that you're critical of the literature on things like buprenorphine, what is your take on medication-assisted treatment, whether it's for opioids or alcohol or nicotine, whatever it may be? (laughs) You had to throw nicotine in there. Nicotine is, uh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I, again, I, I do think there's place just like with psychiatry, just like with mental health, there's definitely a place for medication and uh, with severe opioid use disorder or severe alcoholism or nicotine addiction, having medications as options and having pe- make sure people have access to those options, knowing which one, which medication may be the right medication for somebody, buprenorphine versus methadone versus naltrexone or campersate versus naltrexone or even trying antabuse with somebody for alcohol use disorder. Nalmaphene is a new one that uh, I don't think is in the United States, but that's something to that may be coming online soon. Um, and certainly, like with vaping, all this media around vaping and, and e-cigarettes and Juul, um, you know, having alternative options for people to manage their addiction is is really important. But I'd steer away from sort of the overselling or the overhyping of uh, medications as being like the number one go-to, really only easy option for people to to manage their addiction. I think it's it's usually it is much more nuanced than that and there's there's a lot of research that we you can pull out that sort of points to that that nuance. Even something that came out of it was in the Journal of Experimental and Clinical Psychology recently Brandon Bergman and John Kelly out of uh, Mass General Harvard Medical School published uh, an article looking at the attitudes of actually patients and their attitudes towards medication either for themselves or for other people. And really showing overall a very neutral 
a neutral impression towards medications in general. Uh, I think for opioid use disorder specifically, maybe alcohol use disorder too, I'm not sure. And that, that, those were pretty revealing findings. They, that just came out. That was really an interesting article showing that. I do wonder if part of that would be stemming from the fact that even if you are a drug user, you're coming from a culture that so emphasizes and prioritizes sobriety, or especially at least avoiding non-alcohol drugs, that that ends up getting baked into your outlook, where even if the medication-assisted therapy is helpful for you, you still have this itching sense that you're kind of doing something wrong, that you should be able to be sober. Do you think that that's a factor? Do you think that that occasionally hinders treatment because people, you know, they don't feel good about being on these chronic medications, even though their life overall has demonstrably improved, they still feel like, you know, there's something wrong with them that they need a substance. Well, I, I think that does that does contribute to stigma and that does contribute to someone's self-concept. The, the idea that the, the culture, uh, some cultures may view total abstinence or total sobriety as a, as a superior kind of condition, one that should be strived for at all times, and anything that falls short of that is not good enough somehow. But I, I think that that contributes in part to attitude towards medications for, for patients themselves. But I mean, being in recovery myself, knowing what it's like to struggle with uh, addictions, you, you have to be able to sort of trust that the individual themselves outside of societal conditioning has a sense of their own psyche, has a sense of their own body, has a sense has a sense of their own desires, and has a sense for themselves is like, am I happy with being on buprenorphine for the rest of my life or for the long term or methadone? Um, am I happy with the stability that I have because of this medication? Or am I not independent of what society says? I, I, I want to give patients a lot of credit for their own sense of self-agency, self-awareness, self-understanding outside of societal or cultural pressures. And in that sense, if you were to take that approach, many of those folks will say, you know, I would like to be drug or alcohol free someday. I don't know if I'll ever get there, but if I can and there's a way to do it, that would be something I would want for myself, not because society says that's a better path, but because I want that. If there are any things that come to mind, what are what's a single or a, a couple changes in the general realm of addiction treatment or just general psychology uh, treatment, psychiatric treatment that you would like to see change? If there were uh, you know, one or two big things that you see wrong with the current system and you think would have a big impact if addressed. Um, what what are those things? I would say right off the bat, what comes to mind, first of all, is raising our addiction and mental health IQ. As providers, I don't care what discipline we're in, if we're mental health providers, if we're addiction treatment providers, if we're general health care providers, we need to constantly raise our IQ. What I mean by that is raise our education level, raise our awareness, raise our training, raise our standards when it comes to working with patients and what conditions people come in with. I think, you know, being a perpetual student, a learner, somebody who wants to learn more across disciplines is vital if we're going to turn the tide on I don't know if that's the right word. If we're going to continue to improve um, quality of treatment, access to treatment, outcomes uh, in terms of mental health and addiction. And then the other thing I would say, Seth, is um, breaking down those those silos. It, it kind of speaks to what my 
first statement was, but really breaking down the silos between healthcare practitioners. The prescribing psychologist movement is really a a cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary kind of model. And I think that if we're, we should be going more and more towards cross-competency, cross-training, cross-education, and working towards that on behalf of our patients. And I think that would improve improve care. If there's anything else uh, that came to mind for any of these topics that you want to discuss. Yeah, no, I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity. I'm hoping, you know, I'm a big fan of yours, just starting to tune into some of your episodes through Zach Rhodes and the Social Exchange. He's also awesome. And I, I just really value the work that you guys do, that you're doing. I mean, your knowledge base is phenomenal. When, I, when I've seen some of your, your material, I know you go deep, deep dives into lots of your topics. And it's just tr- incredibly valuable. And I hope, hope it continues to be successful and expand because uh, people like you are really like it's very much in line with what I just said, raising our awareness, raising it, raising our education level. And I'm hoping that this podcast contributes to to your work. Thanks. I really appreciate that. And thank you for coming on. It was a great discussion. Do you want to direct people to any social media or other resources to learn more about you or these topics? Uh, no, I'm very active on Twitter and get into lots of uh, discussions with folks. I'm at at DRR. I-C-K-B-A-R-N-E-T-T, at Dr. Rick Barnett. Uh, that's on Twitter. And uh, no, I, I mean, that's really where I'm most active on social media right now. And I love engaging with people. I love following people and getting more followers and just, re- again, raising our a level of awareness and interaction for the, for the greater good. Great. I'll link your Twitter in the description. And thank you again for coming on. All right. Thanks so much, Seth. 